The following podcast contains spoilers and words that my mother would prefer I did not say. We watch it. Hello, thank you for joining us. This is We Watched a Thing. Um, as always, I'm Topher and he's Billy. As always. As always. I'm just assuming no one's listened in a couple of months. Oh, that is hurtful. <laughs> that I know deep. it's not true. I know it's You want to know something absolutely crazy? I found this out today and it blew my mind. There have now been more episodes of We Watch a Thing post Topher than there were of Bears on Film. That tracks. I'm not. I'm not weirded out by that. Really? I don't know. Yeah. I that, that just when I found that out, I was like, no, that can't be right. We. I, it felt like we were bears on film for like a year at least. No, no. We realised very quickly that <laughs> people were coming to us expecting commentary on homoerotic cinema and were not impressed when that's what it wasn't. Yeah. The the best review we ever got was still the one that was like, why aren't they talking about Grizzly Adams? <laughs> Movies with bears in them. I still have a bears on film sticker on my car. <laughs> How you been anyway, mate? It's been it's been a little it's been a minute. What have you been it, up to? Well it hasn't been that long since we talked about Dune. <laughs> well that's true. We have talked about Dune. The recently. other one. <laughs> the bad one. <laughs> but what have you been up to? Nineteen eighty four's Dune is the drunk uncle of Thanksgiving and Christmas. <laughs> I mean, for you, it hasn't even been that long since you've spoken on mic about this Dune because you 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 did a guest spot on another podcast when you're not even a podcaster anymore. That's true. I'm still in demand. <laughs> you know what's funny? I I offered with Sam. He reached up to both of us, said, "Hey, d- do one of you want to jump on this?" I was like, "Yeah, I can do it." He was like, "Sounds good, Toph." <laughs> <laughs> get, get the guy who's not on a podcast anymore. <laughs> Um, what can I say? Sam Hurley, he's a man of taste. <laughs> well, what have you been up to anyway, buddy? Same as when I was on this podcast, nothing. Yeah, that tracks. Shall we Shall we talk about a thing that we watched, mate? I'd like to. Let's do it. I'd this sure week, like to. This week we got to your most anticipated film of the year, Dune, a 2021 American epic science fiction film directed by Denis Villeneuve, written by Villeneuve, John Spates, and Eric Roth. It's the first of a planned two-part adaptation of the 1965 novel by Frank Herbert. It stars Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Stellan Skarsgård, Dave Bautista, Stephen McKinley Henderson, Zendaya, Cheng Chen, Charlotte Rampling, Jason Momoa, and Javier Bardem. What a hell of a lineup there. Did you and- skip Dave Bautista? I said Dave Batista. Okay. And what is it about, Toph? It is about, <clears throat> at a uh, high level, high level, it's about <laughs> um, galactic politics, not yeah. unlike uh, Phantom Menace. <laughs> <laughs> Another higher classic. Level, higher level, it's about um, the fallacy of the notion of- the saviour figure, and most crucially, the white saviour figure. Yes, yeah, which is pretty much how you described 84's Dune as well. Yeah, but unlike the book, and unlike, as I think we will see, develop further in part two of this film, which thankfully is going to happen, uh, 1984's Dune really just embraces the the living god aspect of it, um, (laughs) with none of the critiques that, that are in the book. It's just like- Bow down, bitches, for he is the Kwisatz Haderach. <laughs> he is the Kwisatz Haderach. I, I was- one of the great scenes in cinema history. <laughs> Q 
cue the rain. I was really starting to worry that we weren't going to get the part two to this film. I thought that this might go the way of Blade Runner 2049, especially when- like, I was the, terrified. Like, because this got delayed so many times, and then the week before release, they made the very strange decision to release it on streaming the day before cinema release. Like, not even the same day, like the day before. And I'm like, wow, are they trying to kill this movie? But lo and behold, I guess it did do well enough that we are getting the sequel. Thank God, because this really is half a fucking movie. <laughs> yep. Um, so, as you said in 84's Dune, you've read the book. You're a fan of the book. You were very much looking forward to this film. I was really surprised, having not read the book and having seen 84's Dune quite recently... This felt like almost an entirely different story to me. Like, obviously, there are some plot points that cross over, but it was very, very, very different. Which one is closer to the book? I'm guessing this one, right? Um, look, this one, this one is by far and away closer to the book in terms of, like, the spirit of the book. And thematically, okay. this is following it better. In terms of if you had to actually- just lay down beat by beat which one actually, like, ticks more. Yes, he's this scene, he's that scene. It, that'd be an interesting exercise. And I suspect maybe actually it's 84s. Yeah, right. But because it, because it tonally misses the book by so far. Yeah. If you're like, which one's the not even better adaptation, although, like, spoiler alert, <laughs> it's this one. <laughs> but even if you were to say which is the, um, the closer adaptation- it's definitely this one, even if it's not following the scene by scene beats as closely. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and all, like it still does. It, it is still following a lot of scenes. Yeah, like if not verbatim. Like yes, it's like that's what happened in the book, and here's this scene in the film. Like it's still, it's pretty faithful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Except that Doctor Kynes, who was the whitest man on <laughs> earth, is now a black woman. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> which I was in favour of. I've got to be in favour of it because maybe best on ground. Sharon Duncan Brewster, who yeah, I right. know from nothing, yep, um, thought she was fucking sensational in this film. Fantastic. I mean, let's hop straight into the cast then. I mean, massive lineup in this film. Kind of stacked. I remember when, after this film had been announced and I was like, I was Denis Villeneuve, one of my absolute favourite working directors. Yeah, yeah. Adapting- something that you're excited about. I was like, I was already pretty well out of my tree. And then I just remember the, the that period where every couple of weeks or oh, months, you'd yeah. get a new, they'd release like another three names or something. Yes. And it was just constant, feed. like, not only do I love those three people, but the like, it was always, always just such great cast. It was like, this person's playing that person. It was like, that's fucking perfect. Yeah. And this person's playing that person. It was like, that's fucking perfect. It was so great. Yeah. That slow drip feed of casting announcements caused such massive hype for me for this movie because yeah, it's a completely stacked cast and not just not just big names. This isn't this isn't the Mario movie, <laughs> which that casting is cooked. Like, but but these are like really very talented actors and actresses. Nearly all good performances in this film. Uh, there was one performance in this film that I thought was very weak. I don't know if you thought the same thing or if you can pick who I'm talking about. Do you want to have a guess? I'm going to guess you're not the biggest fan of Chalamet. 
I actually didn't mind Chalamet. I've heard quite a few people critique Chalamet. Our, our mate Sam Hurley was was not a fan of Chalamet. Dave Batista in this film, I found really, really weak. And it disappointed me because I've liked him in the past. Only days before this, I finally got to Blade Runner 2049. And in the short bit he's in that film, I thought he was fantastic. I thought he was so wooden in this film. And it's not just his performance. I thought the writing of that character was really one note and just really like honestly give me sting back <laughs> that's not the same character it's not no <laughs> wrong wrong harkening mate either way <laughs> yeah i was i was disappointed in batista in the film i i wasn't disappointed by him um i thought everything he's got to do in this film is pretty one note yeah um yeah. we don't get a ton of Beast Raven. Um, yeah. I hope we get more of him in part two. Yeah. Um, but by no means did I dislike him. He's nowhere near, like, top of the class for me. One thing that surprised me with how stacked this cast is, is how little some of them are in it. Let's talk Zendaya, who I believe is in a grand total of about six minutes in this film. And mm. correct me After if I'm wrong. After being one of the dominating presences in the trailer. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, has zero speaking lines or might have- No, she has, she has lines. Does she? She's talk- yeah, she talks to Paul oh, she- before, he, before he fights Jamis. And she opens the film with a voiceover, doesn't she? Yes, she does. Yes. Which was another interesting thing, that it, it kicks off with voiceover. Like, there- this film isn't completely devoid of exposition. The first kind of 10 to 15 minutes, you get voiceover of her followed by the scene where Chalamet is studying and you just get this voiceover of him reading the texts telling you everything about this world. And I was a little bit like, okay, all right. So we're not we're not losing all of this. <laughs> um, but yeah, there are several of these big cast names. Jason Momoa is another one who's really in this film very little. Even Batista is not in this film that much i'm assuming yeah, I think, like because momoa i think casts a pretty big shadow over the film um yeah. his like momoa's charisma is just jacked up to 11 in this film it yep. is i think i can say pretty handily my favorite jason momoa performance yeah um yep he's like he's not just being massive charismatic dude although he is both massive and charismatic yeah yeah I really liked him in this film, but certainly, yeah, there's there's other characters like like Thufir Horwat, the the Mentat, and like Josh Brolin's Gurney yep, Hullock, yep. that at this point in the story uh, have just been absent from the screen for a long time. Absolutely, and I'm assuming that a lot of like obviously Zendaya is going to have a large part to play in part two. So yeah, I just thought it was interesting that it was such a stacked cast. It's almost like doing season one of a show. And casting a bunch of people, but you're like, look, you're not really going to be in it till season two. <laughs> and just assuming you get picked up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, they made this film without without the knowledge that there would definitely be exactly. yeah, a part two. It's like, well, everyone yeah. do good work because yeah. you know, we all want to come John back Carter. and finish this. <laughs> And I, I'm a, I've become a massive Zendaya fan personally. Like I loved Malcolm and Marie. I think that she has done some excellent work. I'm really looking forward to seeing her play more of a part in part two for sure. Yeah, she she's one of. I mean, look, I'm always going to be massively looking forward to part two. Yeah. Um, but seeing exactly how they decide to use that character is, I think, a very interesting question, and it could pay off. It could pay off hugely, I think. I agree. Um, both, I, I, both her um, and her 
and her Fremen father for that point. We, <laughs> see a ton of st- we don't have a ton of Stilgar in this film. No, no, not at all. Yeah, it comes in, spits on the ground. It's fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> that scene is great. Yeah, I, I honestly, if nothing else, this film gave me giant expectations for part two. Like, I, I cannot wait for part two now already. <laughs> I was a very happy boy. Me too. So, where were you on Chalamet then? You were a fan? Yeah, like in general, I, I am a fan. Um, Same. And yeah. Paul's not- Paul's not an easy character, I wouldn't no. have thought, yeah. to portray. There's so much of it is internalized. So much of it is just plain weird shit yeah. that is for both, I think, the actor and also just as for the film. It, it, it Like, Paul's a tough character. Yeah, definitely. To try and portray, to try and get across everything that's going on with that guy is a big ask, yes. I think. And this uh, film doesn't doesn't use the crutch of voiceover like 84's did either. The second movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know who else I thought was exceptional was Rebecca Ferguson. And Lady Jessica, again, this is probably closer to the book, I'm guessing, very much a main character in this film as compared to the 84 one. Like, really, this film is... Paul and Jessica on, you know, it's a it's a bit of a Fellowship of the Rings of those two. And yeah, she has ex- a big part to play and is really fantastic. They've expanded Jessica a bit for the film. Okay. Um, but not a ton. Like, she's a very important person. Yeah. Um, in the book. But I think they've, I think they went out of their way in, in trying to make the story less of a sausage fest. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There was the, the gender flipping of Dr. Kynes. Totally worked. Yep. There's- not only expanding the role of Jessica a little bit in the film, but also just making sure that the audience is aware of how important she is. There's that yes. great in the in the meeting between Paul and the Reverend yep. Mother. Um, one of my, it was one of my favourite little moments in the film, actually, um, when she's talking about how important Paul is, and he says, "Because of who my father is," and she's and she yeah. just immediately says, "Because of who your mother is." Yeah, and I was like, "That's re- that's." That's yeah. really good. Unlike 84's Dune, I actually completely understood what was happening at every point in this film. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, it was actually very followable. <laughs> like, it, it is it is a dense movie, particularly, I guess, thematically. And as you say, a lot of the characters can be- It's a thoughtful movie. Like, it's not like their, their thoughts and feelings and motives are handed to you on a plate. You know, there's no second moon. <laughs> but it's- it was v- so much more understandable than 84's Dune. And I agree with you. The way that they got across Jessica's importance in this universe was what really made the difference for me between these two films. Uh, like, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of differences. But, like, <laughs> structurally and narratively, that was the big one for me, was just her importance in this universe. Yeah, I was a fan of of a bunch of the world. I don't think they they don't get bogged down no. in world building in this film. But yep. some of the ways that Villeneuve managed to just convey a feeling about something like sticking with the Benny Gesserit and their visit um when the Reverend Mother does go a bit seven yep. with with Paul with what's in the box. And this is also and we well, we may well spend more time on this, but the look of the scene of the entrance oh. and exiting of the Benny Gesserit, the the feeling that Greg Fraser imparts on that scene with yeah. the lighting. Yes. Oh. They don't in in that scene, they they're not telling you anything really specific yeah. about this order, but they do a spectacular job of just conveying a feeling about these people. 
Um, it was, I thought that scene, or those, you know, the two scenes of them coming and going was just pretty elite shit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. You said it at the start, I think Villeneuve is one of the finest working directors today. And I've now happily seen all of his films almost for, I've seen all of them for like the last 15 years. So I'm missing like his first very couple of very indie films, but watching his progression is incredible. And I don't know about you. I'm going to, this is a fucking B Dizzle's big call right here. B Dizzle's big call. I think this is the best looking film I have ever seen. (laughs) Like this is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful film from start to finish like i know that this isn't your man deacons uh but i mean good god this is a stunning looking film and not only stunning but always serving the purpose like the the cinematography the lighting the production design this film is fucking phenomenally beautiful well yeah like what what a bar you've got to clear if you're Greg Fraser, yeah. Mel- Melbourne's Melbourne's Greg Fraser, I think. Yes, call him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who you, um, you've you've brought up on the show before. I know he's he's done a couple of films that you've loved. Oh, I'm yeah. Already before even before this film, I was yeah. I, ha- I had a lot of Greg Fraser stock. Yeah, and yeah, you're working with a director who has worked more than once with Roger Deakins. Yeah, um, on Arrival, he was working with another one of my favorites, Bradford Young. Arrival is a stunning film. Oh, I love that. So. Movie. The bar when working with Villeneuve from the visuals oh. is really high. Exactly. Um, thankfully, Fraser's got that, you know, the grounding in having done uh, Rogue One and season one of The Mandalorian of yeah. having working a bunch with visual, visual effects. effects. Yeah. Um, which it, it's, it, it's impossible, I think, to imagine a film where the elements that were shot in camera. Yeah. And the visual effects marry up and work as well as they do in this film if you haven't done it before. It's just like you can't imagine that that's doable if you don't have the grounding Greg Fraser's got in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, because he knocks this film completely out of the park. It's completely. amazing. And as you say, like the stock, like he's coming off the back of Villeneuve's pair up with Deacons on Blade Runner 2049. Which, which finally delivered Deacons an Oscar. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you know, Deacons got an Oscar for cinematography. It was up, I believe it won the Oscar for visual effects as well. So that marrying in that film was insane. And you wouldn't be shocked if a double up was going to happen again. I mean, absolutely it should. Like, absolutely it should I think this will romp it in for visual effects. Yes, easily. Because one thing the Academy loves in the visual effects category is if there's the the prestige pick. That's right. They, you know, they take it. Yeah. Um, I think think this will romp it in for visual effects. Yeah. And it is, like, one of the great things about- I mean, you touched on it right at the beginning that this did, of course, come out on HBO Max. It was available for people to watch. I'm incredibly happy that I held out Same. and saw this at the cinema because it is a phenomenal theatre experience. Absolutely, yeah. And for once, like, you know, we've done it, everyone's done it, CGI has a bad name. Yeah. And it is so nice to sit in a theatre and be wowed by CGI for all the right reasons. That's right. I mean, there is a huge amount of CGI in this film, a huge amount, and yet- it would be very, very hard, even for a VFX artist like myself, to go through this film and try identify the CGI. You know, like, I'm sure that there is plenty of set extension, just as, like, a minor thing. I mean, obviously, you've got the big things. You've got the 
the body armor, which sadly isn't as boxy as the 84 one. I, I kind of miss you that design. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, so there are those those big obvious things. But this film, just, like, the blend is so beautiful in this film. Like, th- don't get me started on the sandworms. Like, the design of the sandworms is incredible. And I'm sure that that's 100% CGI. But if you told me that some of that was puppetry or animatronics, I wouldn't be able to argue with you because it's so physical that it just works so well. One of my, I mean, you know this, one of my continuing pet peeves about a lot of CGI is that it feels divorced from gravity. Yes. Things just yep. feel like they have no weight to them. Yep. And then, yeah, the, things like the sandworms in this film, you know, there's this giant thing busting out of the ground and it's like, oh, my God, that thing weighs as much of a fucking s- as a city. Exactly. Yep. Every time you can see it moving and you can see the earth crumbling and shaking, it just gives it such weight. Another, another shout out for just shit hot visual effects. The Sardaukar troopers yep. dropping down as if they're attached to a rope, yeah. but they aren't. Oh, my. What a fucking shot. Yeah. Are yeah. you kidding me? Fucking. Uh, that whole sequence, actually, of then, like, the Fremen are just gone. Yeah. yeah. And then they rise up out of the sand and murder the shit out of them <laughs> as, the, as this dust cloud, like, engulfs. Like, the, like the desert itself is swallowing yeah. these intruders. Yeah. Fuck. You fucking rule, Villeneuve. I mean- I, I, I meant it when I said, you know, like I regardless, I haven't even really given too much of my thoughts on this film, but regardless of anything else I thought about it, I do think that this is the best looking film that I've ever seen. And like you said, I'm so grateful that I waited to see this in a cinema because it is stunning. There's not a bad shot in this film. Like, it's fucking glorious. <laughs> one, one of the just... Phenomenal choices that Fraser makes with the lighting of this film. I brought this up talking to Sam a couple of days ago on his podcast. Oh, so I'm getting the sloppy seconds. You're getting the slop. <laughs> Hopefully, I'll do it better here. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> the, the I think, inspired choice to lean so heavily into darkness when conveying the heat of where they've come to. Yeah. Um, when when they first set foot on, on Arrakis, you get this- this feeling to, you know, keep it all in, intertwined in the the Villeneuve verse, going back to another Deacons film in Jarhead when mm-hmm. they first arrive in the desert. Yeah, it's it's like Deacons like overexposes it by half a stop or something, just so it yep. really hits you. And and likewise here, going from the the green and blue Caledon to Arrakis, uh, it's just this, you know, just genuinely blaring light when you've been sitting in a cinema and your eyes of you know your, your pupils are fucking wide open yeah and then all of a sudden bang it hits you with a rackets and it is fucking near blinding yeah then from that point anytime they're like inside it's dark as shit because of course these people are just constantly hiding yes from the heat so it's, it's like the opposite of of Midsommar, <laughs> yeah. where it's just yeah. drenched in sunshine <laughs> it's, yeah it's like really quite dark, as which is so it's so counterintuitive of how you would convey this brutal climate. Yeah, but it, but it fucking works beautifully. Well, absolutely, because that's real life. You know, like I've been to hot climates before, and you do until you need to go outside. 
You hide in your room with all the windows closed and the aircon set to 15 degrees. <laughs> like, that's just what you do. <laughs> so it makes total sense to me. And I love the, you know, like you said it doesn't get bogged down in the world building. And you're completely right. It doesn't at all. That's what's so genius about this film is those little touches that give you the sense of this universe. You know, the fact that they wear those suits that are filled with moisture that they can drink. And it's like... You don't want to think too hard about the still suit. You really don't. Yuck. You really, really don't. <laughs> and it doesn't it doesn't give you too much info about it either. It's enough that you can fill in your own your own head, but it's just one of those really nice touches that just adds to what this universe is. One one of my absolute favorite uh effects shots in the film is when they first I think it's their first approach into the city of Arakeen when they've just got to Arrakis, Arrakis. And there's a shot of them flying over the city, which I'm convinced this is intentional. I'm completely convinced that Villeneuve has done this with a bit of a wink to the audience. That as we fly over Arakeen and then approach this pyramid-like structure that is the seat of power. Yeah. If you replace the sunshine and the sand with nighttime and rain, it's a Blade Runner shot. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like it, it's not—it's not even a Blade Runner twenty forty nine shot. It's just a flat out Blade Runner shot. Yeah, like if you just—if you did a a really aggressive color grade of that <laughs> shot and put in some rain effects and just put like the 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 Tyrell emblem somewhere on that home base, you'd be like, oh yeah, it's Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah. And I was just personally, I was just very tickled by it. In fact, you could almost—you can actually dig down a little bit deeper on that, I think, and say that you could almost imagine that. That Blade Runner and that that Dune is just eight thousand years after Blade Runner. Well, and that the reason why the reason why there's no computers in this galaxy now, yeah. is that look what happens when we allow these things to go out of control. You get something, yes, as gorgeous as Ryan Gosling, but yeah. also it goes bad. I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to that in a minute. Before I do though, I just want one of the things I fucking love about Villeneuve as a director is, like you said, with the the Blade Runner homage is that you can very clearly see with him the puzzle pieces of things that have inspired him and and other art that he brings to it. And it's like, you know, even though this is, I mean, pretty much a straight sci-fi film, really. Like, and, and you can see that in his progression. He started with more kind of psychological thriller and then we get Arrival and then Blade Runner and now this. He's He's moving towards being more of a genre director, I think. But you can still see all those other elements in this film. Like, this is not, this isn't a Star Wars film. And that might disappoint some people. And maybe it won't do as well at the box office because people might be hoping for or expecting a bit more of a swashbuckling sci fi adventure. And it has elements of that, but it has so much more to it, which is fantastic. <laughs> On the whole, you know, this being 8,000 years in the future thing, the one thing I had which I found really interesting, and I wanted to talk to you about this to get your take on it. Having not read the book and having only seen 84's Dune, I never really thought about this until this film, and maybe I should have, but we actually get a date at the start of this film, which for starters I I found strange, because very rarely do we get that, especially with something this distant in the future. We just- it just doesn't usually happen. Secondly- the names like Paul and Jessica and stuff. I know that obviously they look humanoid, but are are these humans? Have they left Earth? Because I don't remember there being any mention of Earth. Like obviously they're now living on different planets. 
in my head, I every time I see a movie like this, I actually assume that it's an alien race. You know, like Star Wars. I've never thought of Luke Skywalker as as a human, if that makes sense. I don't think of that being set as characters who have migrated from Earth. But this movie really got me thinking. Is is that explained in the book? Is this supposed to be our own timeline, for example? That's a really good. It's a really good point, actually. Like, yeah, Star Wars, as you say, it's populated largely by human actors. But yeah. of course, it's a different galaxy, so they can't be exactly human. That's They're just exactly very, very human-like. Um, yes, Dune, humanoid. Yes, I would say. yeah. Dune, yes, is the future of the human race. Um, okay, all right. I, be- I believe that at some point you do find out what actually happened okay. to Earth, but I haven't read. I've read the first three. Yeah, Dune novels. I don't know what actually happened. To Earth. I think it's just- But you just kind of get this feeling that something's- Something bad happened. Yeah. The first three are the only Frank Herbert ones, right? And then after that, his son took over? Or was it more than that? I couldn't swear to how many. I think maybe there's more than the first three that are, okay, that are Frank, yeah. but I couldn't, I couldn't swear to it. But yeah, as soon as the movie started and we got that date, it really just threw me off. And I, I couldn't stop thinking about whether these were, in fact, actual humans. And I found it very strange that names like Paul and Jessica have- hung around in the zeitgeist for that long, <laughs> you know? And they're very they're very human characters as well, is what I find very interesting. Like, they make really human choices, and it's just- it, Yeah, I just found it really interesting in that way. Let's talk about the score and the music. Obviously, we don't get the beauty of Toto, <laughs> so that's a bit of a shame. shame. <laughs> but- I loved the score for this film. I went home straight away and added it to my Spotify because it's it's banging. Yeah, and Hans didn't go full. It didn't go Hans. full Hans. Like, when yeah, when Zimmer swings, he swings hard. And look, this is still a, it, it is it is still a big score in moments, like un- undoubtedly, yeah. undoubtedly, but not to the point where in in recent years where like Zimmer's almost become a caricature of Zimmer. I think. absolutely, yeah, yeah. I agree. I'm not a huge fan of a lot of- Like, a lot of his work that he's done with Nolan, I don't overly love. Um, This reminded me much more of the work he did on Blade Runner 2049, which I loved, but that was very heavily inspired by the original Blade Runner. So, it was kind of hard to straddle that line between how much he brought to it. But this this score was just fantastic. And I think he skipped doing Tenet to do this. Yeah, right. Well, good on him. Broke with (laughs) Nolan. Yeah. Yeah. So, obviously, it's been greenlit now. Is there any talk of- I'm assuming we're we're still a couple of years away from that. This isn't going to be one of those films where we get the sequel the following year. (laughs) No, I don't think you can pump this thing out in in a Clint Eastwood time frame. (laughs) Clint Eastwood. (laughs) You know, I was was watching a game show today, right? Not to get off track. I mean, that's not what we do here. We, We don't do this. I was watching a game show today. And it's a little bit like a family feud type game show where they ask a question and you have to give the top answers that survey results. The question was, what modern actor would you like to have a drink with, right? I hear modern actor. I don't go Clint Eastwood, but he was he was the top answer. And I'm like, what kind of people are you surveying? <laughs> can, yeah. can Clint Eastwood leave the house? Clint- <laughs> Not without calling- I mean, clearly, clearly he can. He had a film come out like two months ago. Not without calling people d***s, unfortunately. <laughs> like, people still want to have a drink with Clint? I know. I know. There's the other- You know, there's a couple that of- guy is 
old. Yeah. There were a couple of, you know, like Tom Hanks was there, Tom Cruise, George Clooney. That all made sense. But then Clint Eastwood, I'm like, what in the fuck is with this? Mm. <laughs> I thought I thought maybe like maybe the shock was going to be that, that Javier Bardem was right up there. Because I think I would love to have a drink with Javier Bardem. Yeah. That would be cool, actually. He he seems like he would be a pretty cool dude. Oh, I think Bardem would be a great hang. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, okay. Ditto, ditto, ditto. Okay, I would love to have a drink with Bardem. I would love to have a drink with Momoa. I would love to have yep. a drink with, I mean, my guy, Oscar Isaac. You know oh, you, God, want, you know that I want to do more than have a drink with Oscar Isaac. <laughs> he's a dreamboat, isn't he? <laughs> oh, my God. Like, no wonder Jessica was like, I know I'm here for a purpose in this- in this arrangement, but I'm just going to go ahead and fall in love with this guy because, yeah. like, oh, yeah. no sh- no shit. I mean, please, please arrange my marriage to Oscar any day. <laughs> he's he's just a walking dream. He's, ah, oh. And he's getting more attractive as time rolls on as well. He's like the opposite of us. <laughs> <laughs> is he older than you? He is older than me. Yeah, I thought so. You couldn't tell, mate. <laughs> Um, well, let's talk about Oscar Isaac, which we haven't yet. Also fantastic in this film. Also, you know, given the runtime of this film, it's amazing how many characters actually have quite a small part to play. He's probably, probably third or fourth lead, I guess. Um, but still in a a surprisingly little amount, but the amount he is in it, he's just fantastic. Yeah. He's a, you know, he's a character who needs to cast a shadow long after he's gone. Which he does. Like he he just has to, um, for the story. So, yeah, fucking cast Oscar Isaac, because it'll yeah. work. I mean, the shadow of his dick will hang around for 10 hours after he's left a room. <laughs> I mean, that's just crude. <laughs> you were thinking it. You you reckon that? Yeah. That's what you think I was thinking. I, re- I reckon that's what you were thinking. Okay. <laughs> I'll cut it. <laughs> but I'm in control now. I don't have to cut it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I haven't given much negative feedback yet. Having one of your characters say this is just the beginning, seconds before the film ends, it's pretty on the nose. Yeah. It's pretty on the nose. I did not like it. It's almost as bad as when you start a movie and and you freeze frame and you're like, yeah, that's me. Guess how I got here. (laughs) It's like, yeah, no, you don't. You don't do it. Um, Yeah, look, let's hop straight to the ending because I do actually have some negatives. I, as I've said- so much of this film is incredible. I think the casting is insane. Everything about the production is brilliant. I think that the pacing is off. I do think that the film is too long, personally. I and, could have it be longer. Well, I, I don't. I, I'm all for Villeneuve just getting lost upside his, his well, own asshole. <laughs> it's, fine, it's fine by me. See, here's the thing. I know that many, many, many people had issues with the pacing of 2049. I actually didn't. I, For me, the pacing of this film is worse than that. I think that that film actually holds quite steady. I think that this film is just too long. And I'm not talking a huge amount. I'm only talking 15 minutes, maybe 20. Like, I'm not saying you need to cut this back tremendously. But my biggest issue with the film is that it is half of a film. And that, to me, is a little bit of a cardinal sin to not, especially not knowing that you're getting a part two 100% greenlit. You know, you look at Fellowship, for example, 
And like, yes, it's part of a trilogy, but it has an ending. Like at the end of that film, you get a good feeling in you. You're like, okay, yeah, I, I, I know the story that we've seen so far and where we're headed. Whereas this film very much just ends. As you say, you get someone saying, well, this is just the beginning, which yes, completely on the nose. But without that, you kind of have nothing. Like it, it just ends. And I'm not saying that you need heaps more, but I just think that the pacing of those final 10 minutes or so, and I know that, okay, sure, he, he meets up with the Fremen, he, he sees Zendaya, this woman that he's been seeing in his dreams, and I guess that's meant to be your kind of moment of closure for this film. But for me, it just wasn't quite enough. The thing I like about the point where they chose to make the cut um, between part one and part two is that it's less about story and plot and more about Paul. Yeah, okay. Um, he, has, he, he has these visions of his of his own death mm-hmm. um, and to go, you know, high-minded, full wank about it. You kind of do – you get the death of Paul Atreides or, yeah. or at least, you know, you get the death of Paul Atreides, the innocent, right at the end of the film when he okay. himself takes a life. And, okay, yeah. And very much like if you know what's coming, it's a massive point between Paul Atreides, the man-child, yeah. and what – Paul becomes it's a it's a real line in the sand kind of moment. Okay. So that from that perspective, I like where they decided to do it. Okay. See, I guess I, I don't come into it with that same knowledge as you, but I mean the way you explain it, that sounds pretty great. So I mean, would you class this then as like a coming of age story more than anything? Is this really a, is this more of a character study about Paul than anything else? Yeah, oh, I don't know if coming of age is not how I would describe it, but again, I can't I can't be divorced from what I know about it. Um, yeah, so yeah. for me, it's not a coming of age. It's it's a lot. It's a loss of innocence. I do like those kind of journeys. I do like a loss of innocence journey. So obviously, by the end of this film, we know that Lady Jessica is pregnant. Are you? I mean, you know the story better than I do. Are we getting a time jump? Is is part two going to pick up exactly where this ended, or are we going to pick up with? Because by the end, I of wouldn't the be surprised film, if we- part two picks up six months down the track. I wouldn't be at all shocked if that happens. By the end of the film, we need the little girl screaming, he is the Queen of with lightning around If her. If we don't get that, what we'll, oh, what right. do we sit through five hours for? What the fuck? Why would I sit through this shit if I don't get that little girl screeching with lightning all around her? <laughs> Doing a weird dance. He is the Queen of Can't say it enough. <laughs> if we don't get Incredible. that moment- it, it like you're fucked, yeah. Villeneuve. Like you said, we riot. <laughs> yeah, it just depends on like there's there's probably some kind of fun storytelling in there of like just have a fucking montage of becoming a Fremen. <laughs> um, but then you know, do they really want to? Yeah, so it depends on how much Villeneuve wants you to bed you down in the world of the Fremen. Yeah, okay. Or are we just like, all right, let's skip forward six months and get to where we need to get to here? Let me ask you I mean, you could spend- They could spend the first 45 minutes of part two getting to six months down the track, or they could start six months down the track, and either either can work. Let me ask you this. Do you see a scenario, and is there enough source material? Because, okay, we know that this is a part one, and now we know that a part two has been greenlit- is there a scenario where we end up with a part three, where he decides to split this story? Like, is there enough source material there in this first book that he will possibly split this even further before? And do you see us ever getting an adaptation of book two based on this? Not with not with how much they've covered 
in part one. I think I think part two just has to be the rest of the first book. So source material-wise, you think we've covered. Yeah, but I know Villeneuve is interested in a third film. Yeah, okay. Based on the second book. Yeah. Whether whether he yeah. Whether that would be book two or does he want to try and do two and three? I I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, but I know he's interested in more than just one more film. That's that's interesting. So this was your most anticipated film of the year. We we did a little bonus and last for the year. patrons. I was going to say, I think it was the year before last. We little did a little bonus for the patrons on most anticipated films, and this was right up there for you. Did this meet your expectations, or was it was it close at least? It is unreasonable to think to think <laughs> that any film could reach my expectations yes. of Villeneuve adapting Dune. I was giddy beyond all reason. So. <laughs> Were my expectations met? Not entirely, but yeah, no shit. <laughs> um, did I walk out satisfied? Yes, I did. This yeah. is a really good film. It is, yeah. How, how are you scoring it then? Eight out of ten. I'm also an eight. I'm also an eight. For me, I'm not sure if this film at this stage is as strong as 2049. I, I really, really loved that film. That said- I'm really hoping that that people come to 2049 over the next- period of time like as happened with Blade Runner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I truly believe though that a part 2 could turn me around. Absolutely. You know, because l- let's face it, as this is half a film, a part 2 could affect how I feel about this one. You know, I don't know about you, but Endgame made me like Infinity War less. <laughs> so, you know, well, see, I think Infinity War looks pretty good up against Endgame. <laughs> But I could definitely see, you know, my love for this film going up over time. Like, you know, that wasn't my last watch of it. I'd love to yep. get to this in cinemas again before it's done its run. I mean, one of my great hopes was, like with 2049, that Villeneuve just, you know, he, that he would go for a vibe. And he did, bless him. Yeah. All right. Well, that was fun. It was awesome to have you back on mic, buddy. <laughs> I had so few notes as well. It was very un-me. Oh, oh! You did, you did a bit of a B-Dizzle on it, did you? <laughs> yeah, I used to be. I was such a nerd. I was so prepared <laughs> back in the day. It's more fun when you go in loosey-goosey, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, you know, it's jazz, man. <laughs> it's jazz. You play some notes with it. And look. It's, it's the points you don't make. Uh, next week, I will be joined by Paul from The Countdown talking about one of his favourite films, Mad Max Fury Road. A film which I've only seen once and did not love. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, and then the week after that, all going well, I'll be joined by Duty Dutram to talk about Spider-Man. What's this one called? No Way Home? No Way Home. And uh, and then, of course, it's Christmas. So as is tradition, you're going to be hopping back with me to, to do a little Christmas oh, special. God, people will have had a gutful. They're, oh, they'll be sick of Topher, mate. They'll be like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> Give me back B. Yeah, the New Testament <laughs> listeners. <laughs> no one's going to have a gutful of you, mate. Or what? Are, do we know what we're going to do yet for our Christmas episode? Yeah, we're doing Die Hard too. That's right. Five years after after Die Hard, getting to the sequel. Yeah, the next greatest Christmas movie. So, it, just, just clarify for me. It is set at Christmas, right? Yeah, it's Christmas Eve. Okay, so it's so it, it is literally like Die Hard then. Yeah. But no Gruber then. He's, he's well dead. Yeah, yeah, he did fall off that building. Have you seen the, those amazing advent calendars that are like Nakatomi Plaza? 
and it has Hans Gruber on it. And every time you pull out a tab for a day, he, he falls slightly further down. So by Christmas Day, he hits the ground. <laughs> Fucking cool stuff. That's great. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everybody. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with me, you can do that at wewatchedathing.com or wewatchedathing at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all under the handle at wewatchedathing. If you want to help support the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wewatchedathing, and I'll catch you next week. Watch a movie, folks. Oh, you did it! (laughs) 